New Testament scholar Nijay Gupta, he says this about the kingdom of God. He says, to pray thy kingdom come is a bold acknowledgement that we know the folly of following our own way, a way that can only lead to destruction. And I would go further to say that it is a bold acknowledgement that following the kingdoms of this world is also a way or path that can only lead to destruction. So we're talking about the Lord's Prayer, and this is our fourth week, and this morning we're looking at this concept of the kingdom of God. When we pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. What are we talking about when we pray, thy kingdom come? What does it mean? These are questions we're going to wrestle with this morning. Over the last three weeks, we've covered a lot of ground. We began by looking at some non-examples of prayer. That prayer is not about garnering the attention of others, but rather humbly submitting ourselves to God. We talked about our adoption in Christ. That we can call God Father. And because he is our Father, we have unfettered access to him. And last week, Pete talked about the holiness of our God and our calling to live in a way that reflects that holiness to the world around us. That theme is going to carry over into our conversation this morning. But, but when we think of kingdom, if we were to do a word association exercise, I would bet that many of us, if not all of us, when thinking of the idea of kingdom, we would begin to imagine something reminiscent of a scene from King Arthur and his Knights of the Round Table or the Lord of the Rings. For those of us who are a little less cultured, and I would lump myself into that group, maybe it's the Disney version of Robin Hood with Prince John sucking his thumb that comes to mind. That's one of the best Disney movies of all time. Let's, let's call it what it is, right? Wherever our imagination takes us, what we need to grasp about the kingdom of God is that it is not so much about geography, although the kingdom does stretch across time and space, but rather it is about the rule and reign of the king and how it pushes against the domain of darkness and the ruler of this present age. And so you were given a bulletin when you came in, and we're going to follow a simple outline. The first point that we're going to look at is here today, gone tomorrow, and we're going to be back at the beginning of the Bible. And as you know, I tend to go back to those first three chapters of Genesis. And so if you have your Bibles, open up to Genesis 1, and we do have a slide for Genesis chapters 1 through 3 that will be up as we work our way through. So let me, let me read a little bit here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. It's one of my favorite verses. I know I reference it often. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw the light was good. God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. 
And then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let dry land appear. And it was so God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruits, trees bearing fruit in which their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. A couple of things. So the means by which God creates, it's the word of his mouth. He speaks and it happens. What does that say about our God? None other than that he has absolute authority. He has absolute authority, sovereignty, if you will. Again, now we're starting to, to, to hear some themes of kingdom. The sovereign creator speaks and it happens. And then what happens during these first three days? He creates domains. Day one, he creates the domain of darkness and light. Day two, the domain of water and sky. Day three, the domain of land. And notice the repetition, how God is pleased with his creation. The point is, is that the scriptures begin with a being who has the power and authority to speak creation into existence. The text goes on. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights. The greater light to, what's it say? Rule the day. And the lesser light to rule the night. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night. um, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And then God said, let waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the waters and, let, and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So a couple of things. God creates again by the word of his mouth, and he's pleased with his creation, but the difference shows up in the sorts of things he creates. While he created domains in those first three days, these next three days he now creates rulers and inhabitants of those domains. Day four, you have the greater and lesser lights to rule the day and the night. Day five, the birds and the fish and the great sea creatures to inhabit both water and sky to what? Be fruitful and multiply. And then day six, land animals inhabit the dry land, and they are also told to be fruitful and multiply. But see, something's different about day six. I don't know if you notice something about day six. It's a little bit longer. Day six 
has a little bit more information. See, the divine speech of God in verses 26 through 31 seems to overtake and it deviates from the patterns of days 1 through 5. means that the author wants us to pay a little bit more attention to what's going on. Let's see what's going on in verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1. It says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every creeping thing that lives on the earth. So the creation of humanity is a little bit different. It's a little bit different than the rest of creation. See, how did he create humanity? He created them, us, in the image of God. Not only are we called to be fruitful and to multiply, but we are also called to subdue and have dominion over every living creature that moves on the earth. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. This is priestly language. So not only are we meant to rule, but we're meant to care for creation. You sense this idea of kingdom starting to emerge on the first pages of the Bible. Kingdom is just bubbling up. And then he says this to them in chapter 2. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. So we are given a command to be fruitful and to multiply. We are called to have dominion over creation and to subdue it. But we're also given a law, a restriction. And so what do we see is that God is setting up his kingdom by establishing his rule and reign, which was to be carried out by his people over all the earth. Kingdom jumps off the page at the very beginning. Ah, but when there's a kingdom, there's going to be enemies to the kingdom. That's how it always seems to work. See, the war has already begun because in Genesis chapter 3, we're introduced to a new character, the serpent who was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And so what do we see happen? The serpent says, did God actually say the rule and reign of God is now being questioned? The serpent says, you will not surely die. The rule and reign of God is flat out denied. Then it says she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And the ones who were meant to carry out the rule and reign of God and stand watch over the kingdom committed what theologian R.C. Sproul calls cosmic treason. Cosmic treason. Here today, gone tomorrow. The kingdom of God appears to be stopped dead in its tracks. But while the representative rulers might have fallen king is alive and well. The king is alive and well. And so a a plan begins to unfold. 
And so Israel is the path forward for this kingdom of God. See, it was God's plan to redeem this fallen kingdom through the seed of the woman, as we see in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. A seed that, a seed that grew into a nation, but the serpent and his ability to disguise himself as, as an angel of light, as we see in 2 Corinthians, continued to wreak havoc on God's representatives. Flip with me to Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel chapter 34 provides an example of how the kings of Israel failed to live up to their calling. Because, see, as the king goes, so does the nation. It starts off like this, chapter 34 of Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord, ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to seek for them or search for them. Therefore, because of everything I just said, you shepherds hear the word of the Lord as I live, declares Yahweh God. Surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd. And because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds. I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding, the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep. From their mouths. They may not be food for them. A couple of things that pop out as we look through that passage. See, shepherds and sheep are ways of describing kings and their subjects. We see this throughout the Old Testament. We see this actually portrayed in the New Testament as Jesus is described as the good shepherd. We see this all over ancient Near Eastern culture as well. And the role of a shepherd is to feed the sheep. But see, these shepherds are instead exploiting the sheep, leaving them scattered and without anyone to care for them. And verse 10, I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. Behold, I'm against the shepherds, Yahweh says. So what's the point? The ones who are entrusted to care for God's people, to further his kingdom, cared only for themselves, themselves and their own ambitions. They care only for themselves and their own ambitions. The text continues, verses 11 and following. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. I, I want to read that again because that's, that's, that's that important of a verse. Behold, for thus says the Lord God, for thus says Yahweh, the covenant God, the one who spoke creation into existence. What does he said? Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. 
Now that, that should bring us enormous encouragement. Because, because who is looking for us? Almighty God. Almighty God. The king is looking for his people. And see, this is the beauty of the kingdom of God. It was established back in Genesis. Man, it got, it got messed up along the way, right? Because those representative kings and queens, Adam and Eve, were not fulfilling their vocation, their calling. They broke covenant with God. And so what does God do? He establishes a plan through the nation of Israel, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what do we see take place? We see king after king failing, falling, seeking their own ambition. The text goes on. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when, when he is among his sheep and have been that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I hear Psalms, Psalm 23 kind of echoing in the background here. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, behold, I judge between the sheep and the sheep, between rams and male goats. It's not enough for you to feed on the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pasture and to drink of clear water and that you must muddy the rest of the water with your feet and must my sheep eat where you have trodden with your feet and drink where you have muddled with your feet. Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, behold, I, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep because you push with side and shoulder and thrust at all the weak with your horns till you have scattered them abroad. I will rescue my flock. They will no longer be a prey. And I will judge between the sheep and the sheep. And here, listen here, this is where it gets good. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their sheep, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. So what is going on? See, Yahweh takes the role of searching for the sheep. Think of Matthew 18, verses 10 through 14, in the parable of the lost sheep. He rescues them from the peoples, often a term used to describe the surrounding nation, and God places himself in the position of shepherd or king over his people in verse 14, and not only will God be their shepherd, but the prophet says that David shall feed them and be prince among them. Why David? Why David? Well, 2 Samuel 7 tells us why David. That's where we see the Davidic covenant sort of instituted between God and David. The promise was that the kingdom would be ruled by a king who hailed from the line of David. But, but see, Ezekiel does something interesting here. He seems to indicate that the ruler would also hail from heaven itself. And so we have this Davidic king, 
But we also have this heavenly king, Yahweh himself, says, I'm going to rule the people. So what, what's happening here? Because, because one thing we have to know about the promise of God is that it actually requires both. Because there was no mere man capable of ruling for even David. A man after God's own heart was overtaken by the serpent. What do I mean? What do I mean? 2 Samuel chapter 11. Let me take you there. 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle David, battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. David hangs back. David's tired, maybe. Long week. We've all had them. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. And this is where it gets interesting. It says that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. He saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? It's like, yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's someone else's wife, bro. Like, maybe you should look away. But he saw that she was beautiful, and so David sent messengers and, what does it say? Took her. So I want to I get a little nerdy for a second. I've shared this in the past. I want to get a little nerdy for a second. When, when the serpent entered into the garden and, and showed Eve the tree, she saw, same word here, that it was good, same word as beautiful, and she took it, same word here. And so what do we see happening? None other than the serpent kind of getting his mitts into the kingdom once again. We actually see that pattern show up throughout the Old Testament, this saw good took pattern. And here we see the one who was named as one after God's own heart, righteous, and even he couldn't pull it off. Even he couldn't pull it off. But there is one in his line, as we see in Matthew chapter 1, there's one who is the son of David, none other than the Christ himself, who hailed from heaven, Yahweh himself, clothed himself in humanity, the incarnation. So we have what is being fulfilled right before us as we read through the New Testament what Ezekiel was prophesying in chapter 34. That the heavenly king, clothed in flesh from the line of David, came to establish his kingdom. When we pray, thy kingdom come, we are acknowledging that Jesus is the king who has set up his kingdom, and we are his loyal subjects who now, because of our union with Christ, because of our union with Christ, co-heirs and co-rulers with him on the earth. But what do we mean by that? Because when we think of kings, again, right, we start to go back to King Arthur and the round table, and we start to think of, you know, these mighty battles, and we start to think of, of like, feats of strength. But, but it's interesting about the kingdom. See, see, the rule and reign of God has arrived through the person and work of King Jesus. But in the words of New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, when God wants to take charge of the world, 
He doesn't send in the tanks. He sends in the poor and the meek. See, when God wants to take over the world, he doesn't send in the tanks. He sends in the poor and the meek. And the poor and meek one is the son of David, the one who hailed from the backwoods town of Nazareth, born out of what would have been seen as a scandal, a man without a place to rest his head, who was called a drunkard and a friend of sinners, and who was crucified alongside two criminals. Jesus the Christ is our king, and humility and meekness are what mark his kingdom. Humility and meekness are what mark his kingdom. So when we pray, thy kingdom come, what we are asking for is the rule and reign of King Jesus to manifest itself on earth as it is in heaven. And that rule and reign is marked by sacrificial love and humility, the sort of love and humility that is outlined in the Sermon on the Mount where the Lord's Prayer sits directly in the center. But the question we need to wrestle with, the question that all of us need to wrestle with, why? Because we are human and we are also tempted to see what is good and take it like David was. And and I don't think we're any better than David, although we might be because he did some pretty rough stuff. But the question we must wrestle with is whether or not we truly want that sort of kingdom. Do we really want that kind of kingdom? Do we really want the sort of kingdom where where weakness is celebrated, where humility is lauded as good and something to seek after? Right. Just just look at the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God, heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets before you. Do we want that kind of kingdom? Is that truly the kingdom that we want? We need to search our hearts. We need to search our desires. We need to look at how we engage in conflict. Because that will actually tell us the sort of kingdom we want. I struggle with this. I can can lose my temper easily. And I can blame being Italian, but no, 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 no. I can't. I can't. Because I've met plenty of Irish. I've been plenty of Greek, and we can just keep naming them. They all got tempers, right? And us Americans, man, we got tempers too. We got pride. And God is saying, no, no, no. That's not the sort of kingdom I'm establishing. That's not the work I'm calling the church to. See, we talk about worldliness in the church. 
And often we go to the very obvious things, right? right? And some of you who are a little older, you've probably heard the saying, don't drink, don't chew, don't go with girls that do, right? And we, we're like, oh, yeah, that's bad, right? Okay, maybe, I don't know, whatever. I don't want to go into that sort of thing. But, but, but the worldliness, I think, that enters into the church that we need to be more concerned about, that pride, that anger, that desire to rule over, this, this, this arrogance that we think our way is the right way. I mean, there's so much of it, right? Even sometimes I think about the way we do church and, and we wrestle with this stuff. This, this, sort of like, this sort of thing like where we need to make it perfect on Sunday morning. Right? We need to have the perfect live stream. We need to have the perfect announcements. I need to make my way through the slides perfectly. We saw the Galatian slide was no good. But where do we draw that from? That's, that's the world. That's the world. Right? Like this isn't, this isn't a show. We come together. We're the family of God. And I know I get up and I talk for 40 minutes, sometimes 35, sometimes 50. Depends on the week. But it's not, like, it's not about how good of a show I put on. I sure hope it's not. I sure hope it's not. But that's like the world seeping in, right? That's, a, that's, that's the kingdoms of this world. But see, we hail from a kingdom that is not of this world. It's different. It's different. We're going we're gonna to keep moving on here. Because like I said, there were these representative kings that failed but then there was this one king, King Jesus, who came and he proclaimed the kingdom of heaven. I don't know, if, if you read the Gospels, you'll, you'll start to notice that the primary thing that Jesus speaks about is the kingdom of heaven. He talks about kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. And, and, and it was very difficult to figure out which parable should I look at because there's so many that talk about the kingdom. So many. We could spend hours talking about the kingdom of heaven. We're not. We're not. Don't worry. But flip with me to Matthew 25. We're going to look at 34 through 40. So as we saw the first representatives, Adam and Eve, they failed. Those who followed from Noah all the way to the exiles of Babylon, they too were marred by sin. And while some were seen as righteous, none of them were able to fulfill what God was, was, was speaking of in Genesis 3 until the arrival of God himself. And those of us, who have been given the, rights, the right to be called sons and daughters of God. Right, we talked about this a few weeks back. We have been gifted with an inheritance. But see, the thing about inheritance, which I think we often forget, is that when you're gifted an inheritance, you also have a responsibility to, to care well for that inheritance, to, to, to use it wisely, to, 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 to care for it in the way that it was given to you. And so, so turn with me, like I said, to Matthew 25, verses 31 through 40. And I'm just going to read. It says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. That shepherd language starts to pop up again. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on the right, listen, listen to what he says. Listen to what he says. He says, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. 
Why? Why do you inherit the kingdom? Well, because I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, what are you talking about? When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Like, what are you talking about? Like, I don't remember. And the king will answer him. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So notice a couple things. Notice the sheep and notice who speaks. It's the king. The king is speaking. And he actually issues a command. He commands the sheep, inherit the kingdom. Inherit it. It's actually an imperative. That's the kind of verb is being used here. It's a command verb. And then he gives us the reason why. There's this little word for. When you see the word for, that's grounding the command. That's, that's kind of giving the reason behind. See, the main point is inherit the kingdom. And now he's going to explain why. Why. And what are the reasons? Because of how the sheep cared for the people in this world. How the sheep engaged the effects of sin and brokenness in this world. Notice where the rule and reign of God takes its loyal subjects. The, the rule and reign of God takes its loyal subjects to the hungry, to the thirsty, to the strangers, to the naked, to the sick, and to the imprisoned. That's where the kingdom takes the loyal subjects of God. That's where it takes us. Are you catching that? See, the point is that the kingdom of God, his rule and reign, it moves towards the effects of sin and evil with grace, kindness, and truth so that when we pray, thy kingdom come, what we are asking for is that very movement. And the means by which God is making that very move is through, wait for it, his people. His people. See, Jesus took those initial steps, right? First through his incarnation. Then through his battle with the devil in the wilderness. Then as he touched what was unclean and scandalous throughout his earthly ministry and finally on the cross. And now he calls us to go and do likewise. The kingdom of God moves toward the effects of sin and evil in this world with grace and kindness and truth. That's what it does. But see, far too often, I think we as the church, as followers of the king, see, see we look at sinners... As, as the enemy, now, now don't get me wrong, the scriptures do tell us that, that, that prior to coming to Christ, we are at enmity with God. We are enemies of God. But, but notice how Jesus engages the enemy or the enemies of God, those sinners. He moves toward them. 
And so we have this thought for some reason that, that the sinner is the enemy. Maybe it was the young girl who got pregnant out of wedlock. Perhaps it was the young man struggling with same-sex attraction. It could have been that group of kids who went to school with your son or daughter who were constantly getting into trouble. Or maybe it was that homeless man or woman who we judge and refuse to care for because they'll probably blow whatever we give them on booze. Whoever it was... We have far too often labeled them as only enemies of the church. But dare I say, if we are truly engaged in a war that is spiritual and that the real enemies are the powers and authorities, then is it possible, is it possible that those individuals struggling with sin are actually prisoners of war in need of rescue? When the Allied forces found the concentration camps, they did not open fire on the Jewish prisoners. They didn't label them as enemies. They had compassion. They liberated the camps. They gave them food and water. They cared for them. I know it's not a perfect analogy. I know that. Because I know that some of you in here might even be thinking, well, no, the Bible says that Sinners are enemies of God. Yes, that's true. I'm not going to argue that point. But if that's the case, then so too were we. And what did God do? He moved towards us with grace, kindness, and truth. So to pray thy kingdom come is to embrace this calling to be heralds of the good news that Jesus is king. That you can be free from the clutches of sin, death, and the devil. To pray thy kingdom come is to resist the temptation to judge as the world judges. See, that's worldliness. That's the sort of worldliness I think we need to be more concerned with. To pray thy kingdom come is to put on humility, peace, holiness, and to do the very thing we see laid out for us in Matthew 25. Feeding the hungry, quenching the thirsty welcoming the stranger, clothing the naked, visiting the sick. Luke chapter 4, when Jesus starts out his ministry, he enters into a synagogue in verse 16. He says, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written. I love this scene, right? Like, like he gets this scroll. He knows exactly where he's going. Rolls it up. Probably one's silent. Probably one's wondering. They're looking around. That's, that's Jesus. Remember him? Like a little guy running around. He's rolling up the scroll. And he reads this. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to proclaim the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. The truth of the matter is that the kingdom of God has arrived in the person and work of King Jesus. Where we stand today is what theologians have described as the already and not yet. We are in the kingdom. We are experiencing the kingdom of God, but we all can point to the fact that, yeah, but there's something still not right. 
And so we're called to go and set right the things that are not right in the name of the resurrected king. That is a, an unbelievable calling that we have placed upon us. Theologians also call this inaugurated eschatology, that the kingdom has been inaugurated. It began, but it has not yet been fully realized. There will be a day where we will feast together in the house of Zion, where we will see with unveiled faces. But right now, right now, we are agents of the kingdom, ambassadors, as the scripture puts it. And we are meant as image bearers to represent that kingdom. And we represent that kingdom in word and deed, in love and truth, in kindness. I mean, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us, right, it, you, you could do all these things, but if you have not love, you're just a clanging gong. And we all know what clanging gongs are like. If you got kids and you buy them like some, some of those, those instrument toys, right, that we're all really excited when we buy them, and then all of a sudden they have them, right? And we're like, oh, maybe that was not the best move. That's, that's, what, that's what truth without love looks like. What we're living in now is that confusing in-between where the kingdom is here, but it's not yet fully realized. The good news goes forth to the nations because Satan is bound, which is why so many of us Gentiles know the king. Because the kingdom is here, we are called to live in light of it, under the rule and reign of the king. It is a kingdom marked by a new commandment. Love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And he works out the details in the Sermon on the Mount. So as we approach the table this morning, let us come, one, rejoicing that the rule and reign of King Jesus has arrived. Let us also come mourning because there's still sin and death and pain in this world. We rejoice and we mourn all at the same time. That's what it means to be representatives of the King. Let us also come with the drive and passion to go into the world proclaiming good news because we are the hands and feet of Jesus. And so as a word of hope in the midst of the chaos that is our world, as kingdom ambassadors, as kingdom representatives, what we have to look forward to is in Revelation chapter 21 where it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And check out what happens. Check out what he does. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That's good news, Redeemer. 
That's what we mean when we pray, thy kingdom come. It started in its seed form in Genesis. And it comes to its fulfillment and flourishing in Revelation 21. In the meantime, we do the work of the kingdom. We love God. We love neighbor. We proclaim the good news. We serve the weak, the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed. And we do it all heralding the kingdom and the king who's seated on the throne. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you so much. We love you and we thank you so much that you are our king. You are a good king. Lord, teach us the way of the kingdom. Teach us that it is not about might and power, but rather it is about meekness, humility, sacrifice, and love, kindness and truth. Lord, unearth all of that stuff that's in us, Lord God, individually and even as a church. How have we adopted the ways of the kingdom of this world as the body of Christ? Father, help us to love like you loved, to move towards the effects of sin and evil in this world, to see sinners as those who are captive. God, we love you with all of our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.